I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Levin. I'm a grief therapist and the founder of From Grief to Growth, the host of the podcast Untethered, Healing the Pain from a Sudden Death, and I'm the creator and author of the Growing After Traumatic Loss course. I provide support, guidance, and teachings to help you with the aftermath of chaos, trauma, and grief. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Untethered, Healing the Pain from a Sudden Death. I'm Dr. Jennifer Levin, and I specialize in traumatic death and helping individuals through the struggles, pain, trauma, and chaos of an unexpected death. In today's podcast, I feature an interview with a dear friend, colleague, and fierce advocate for survivors of suicide, Dr. Nina Guten. I first learned about Nina when I was getting ready to lead my first traumatic grief group from a colleague almost 10 years ago. When I reached out to her, she asked me to call her back after the summer because she was booked, and let me tell you, she was worth the wait. Dr. Guten is a psychologist who works in the field of suicidology. She works with clients who've experienced the death of a loved one by suicide. She trains clinicians how to work with survivors of suicide loss. She facilitates suicide loss support groups and is extremely active in advocacy and prevention of suicide. She has written countless journal articles, book chapters, and speaks throughout the United States and internationally on the topic of suicide. I'm so honored that she is sharing her wisdom and her experiences with us in this podcast today. Nina, I'm so glad you're here today. Let's go get started. So would you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself? Well, you've already mentioned a lot in the in my bio. So just to reiterate, I'm, I'm in uh, Pasadena. People often say Nina from Pasadena. And I'm just really happy to be here with my long-term friend and with a shared passion in helping people deal with the vicissitudes of traumatic grief. What got you interested in the specialization of working with individuals who've lost a loved one to suicide? Well, I was in graduate school training to become a clinical psychologist in the 90s, and I lost my brother to suicide, Jeff, in 1995. And so I know firsthand what a difficult, uh, life-shattering and traumatic loss it is, but I also know now what at least for my in my own story, what some of the elements were in in being able to integrate the loss and to heal. And so it made complete sense moving forward professionally to be able to make use of what I learned from my own experience and to use that in ways that could uh, help other people. And in doing so, it felt like I'd be honoring my brother, as well as continuing to make meaning of my own loss. And so since 
well, uh, since I've been doing this, I feel like every time I either run a group or work with survivors, um, there's additional growth that occurs as a, as as a consequence of developing relationships and feeling like I've got something to offer. Hmm. You mentioned your brother, Jeff. Are you comfortable sharing your story or Jeff's story with us? Yeah, he, um, I lost him in 1995. I, I don't want to go into too many details, but in our shared history as siblings, uh, there was a lot of trauma in our family. My mother was pretty abusive. She was addicted to multiple drugs and was very volatile and erratic. And uh, he, um, even though social workers remo removed him from our home when he was 12, he went to live with our father and he seemed to be doing much better. In his mid-30s, he started to talk about uh, to me, anyway, what I knew to be flashbacks of some of the abuse. And I basically begged him to go into therapy um, and told him that therapy had saved my life. And he refused. He said, I don't want to know what they are. I just want them to go away. And shortly after that, he took his life. Hmm. I'm so sorry. How did Jeff's death, his suicide, how did that impact your work as a clinician? Uh, well, initially, it, it the impact was a negative one. Um, I was in, just finishing up in graduate school. I had lined up a, a, a postdoctoral fellowship at a community mental health center and had received the message loud and clear that um, I'd better not talk about this in a clinical setting because of the judgment and, and pathology, the, the grief to which my, what I now know is very normal grief was being mm -hmm. pathologized. But I could see, at least in the early phases, that my clinical work was, was clearly impacted that I, um, I mean, everything in my life was impacted, but that I, I really felt like um, I couldn't be the same clinician that I was before the loss. Now, it took me a while to heal, heal from that. And, you know, luckily I, I found that there was such a thing as a group support for survivors of suicide loss and that went a long way in um in in my healing and um so eventually though when I was more healed and felt like and for me that meant that I could bear other people's pain without it activating my own um I actually found that it was really helpful to work with other survivors because in that way I could sort of use my own experience as um, something that would be a, even if I whether or not I disclosed it a way to understand and relate to clients 
and to and to run groups and and again it was a way of feeling like i was continuing have and have been and currently am continuing to make something meaningful out of the loss and then in addition i've been doing trainings for clinicians to ensure that um they are confident to work with survivors because it's a very unique type of loss and also very passionate about making some changes in the larger field of suicidology and and in the way of in our ways of understanding and and treating people with suicide experiences yeah you mentioned it is a unique loss and absolutely i have so many clients that I've worked with who just struggle with issues that are so different um, from any other type of, of sudden death. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us um, from your perspective of what do you think some of those biggest struggles are that um, individuals face right after they've experienced a death of a loved one by suicide? Well, for for one thing, this is a this is a traumatic loss, and so one of the things that's not uncommon is people to have uh, what are commonly understood as PTSD symptoms, mm-hmm. and to feel like in addition to the loss, other types of functioning are impaired, and you know, and most people don't know that this is fairly normal. So start to wonder, oh my God, am I going crazy? I used to be able to do all the, all of these other things and now I can't do them anymore. Um, so to know that it's a traumatic loss and to also understand that in contrast to other types of losses, the both the intensity and the longevity of the losses is, is greater. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, you know, those are just some of the general things. There are also specific issues that that are very um, consistent with suicide loss, which often don't occur in other types of losses. The need to try to, you know, understand why. Yeah. To sometimes deal with guilt, whether or not it's warranted. And to try to give yourself a fair a fair trial, if that's mm-hmm. the case. Um, questions about, you know, the uh, the fact that our loved ones made what most people would conceive of as a choice, but some people can see it as not necessarily a choice. But you know, all of those issues that come from this sense of of our loved ones having made this choice and what does that mean in terms of our relationship um some of the things that can be difficult is there's a lot of stuff going on now about you know all suicide is preventable which is simply not true um but when that seems to be the prevailing message there's this sense that well if I didn't prevent it, then I must have done something wrong, whether or not that has is is, is true at all. But I think that sort of drives the um, the guilt and the self blame in a very uh, unfair and difficult way. Um, and then there's the significant stigma 
um, the research is really clear that survivors of suicide loss are seen as more blameworthy um, and less deserving of support hmm. than survivors of other types of loss. And um, I learned with, along with most other survivors, have experienced people who they thought were friends just sort of disappear. Um, you know, they might be there after the first couple of weeks, but, um, and then if we do run into them, um, the subject seems to be taboo. So it can feel really isolating and that there are very few places where we can even say our loved ones' names, much less talk about um, not only the impact of the loss, but the circumstances of the loss, or even aspects of the relationship and our loved one's lives before then, because people are so kind of freaked out about it. Yeah. So those are just a few of the things that make this a particularly difficult loss. You mentioned the concept of a trial, and um, I'm thinking of a couple people that I've worked with who just constantly, constantly judge themselves, blame themselves over and over again. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to just expand on that concept because they just blame, uh, judge themselves as guilty. And so can you talk more about that? Yeah. And I'm going to quote a, a dear friend and colleague of mine, Jack Jordan, because right. um, he's come up with some sort of great ways of, of conceptualizing this. Mm -hmm. But what he talks about is that, and, and and I know this personally as well as professionally, that when after a suicide, when we look back about at what happened before them, where it's be, it's through a frame of what he calls the tyranny of hindsight. Hmm. So, in other words, we assume that we should have known then what we know now. That we should have known that a suicide was going to happen, when in reality there was, in in many cases, if not most cases, there was really no way we could have known that. And so, in some ways, that presupposes if we a presuppose that we should have known it, it, it carries like well, we're implicitly guilty. Right. Because we should have known what to do and we should have done this or we shouldn't have done that. And so often that's what feels the should have, would have, you know, and the sense of of guilt. And so the the concept of a fair trial, um, sometimes, you know, when I'm with, working with survivors in my practice and and it's, you know, not uncommon. And and again, because I've experienced this myself, um, I, I use what I've sort of developed to challenge myself and, and to say to them, you know, as you're talking about this, I'm, I'm only hearing a prosecutor. Hmm. Um, if, um, if there were a defense attorney, hmm. what do you think they might say? And so... In some ways, if survivors can almost play devil's advocate with their own guilt by thinking about if someone who was their defense attorney were to say, well, Your Honor, um, I 
you know, my, my client was really doing the best that she could at the time. There was no way she could have known that um, doing this or not doing this would have had a negative consequence. And so, you know, so in some ways, if, if they can move out of the, the sort of rigidity of the grief to sort of entertain another perspective, that can lead to a more integrated and balanced way of thinking about this. And, and people have described when they've been able to do this or something similar, that their guilt transforms into uh, remorse. I wish I'd known more then and, you know, might've been able to try to do this or, or, or regret that, you know, I didn't know back then what I know now. And, um, you know, and, and that, that sort of is easier to sit with in some ways than the, the self-flagellation of guilt. That's such a great perspective. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, I know in addition to your clinical work or your client work, that you are so active in providing training to other therapists and in your advocacy work for suicide prevention. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you do in this area? Yeah, so um, there are a number of things that I do. I mean, I do, I, I had done, I've done training in prevention because um, I and, and and I will say there are many of us within the field who are trying to change the pretty entrenched ways in which uh, suicide is understood and the way that people with suicidal experiences are treated. Um, and just to give you a, a little bit of an overview, traditionally it's been framed in terms of a, a very rigid medical model that it's all within the individual. It's got to do with the neurotransmitters and the best uh, type of treatment is with medication. Um, but the, we now have the research and a lot of us have known for a very long time that there are so many other factors besides one's own uh, biological makeup that contribute to uh, suicidal experiences. Um, and that we have to look outside of the, physio the physiology of the individual to look at these outside factors and including things like cultural factors, um, relational factors, um, even political factors can factor in like there are I, I don't want to spend more time on some of the research but it's pretty clear when there are changes in the social structure that the rates go up mm -hmm. um, all sorts of discrimination um and abuse will you know will affect people's suicide so we're really trying to sort of move the needle to become more expansive in our ways of understanding suicide and certainly in our ways of treating this, which is um, basically, well, first of all, assessment is, is basically liability based. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, it's based on the clinician's liability and uses 
symptom checklists rather than sitting with the person and hearing their stories and 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 finding a way to say yes that makes sense from your perspective because more than anything not people who are in distress need to feel hurt and validated not just to be checked off at the checklist mm-hmm. and to do so while um you know trying very very hard to do everything to preserve that person's uh, autonomy uh, because the research is really clear that involuntary hospitalization, even though it, it and I have to say it, it may be necessary in rare circumstances, but it's overused and the research is clear that it's, um, I'm going to use a, a fancy term just because it's a fun term to say, iatrogenic. And basically what does that mean is it it actually makes things worse rather than better. Right. Um not always. It depends on the type of hospital and the type of care that one gets within the hospital. But very often um, these days, it's um, it actually can can make people feel worse. Yeah. So that's one of the areas of training that I and advocacy that I've become involved with. Then there, um, the the other two are within the sphere of suicide bereavement. Um, I'm trying to work with clinicians to help them understand what's unique about suicide loss, Hmm. um, what makes it different from other types of losses. And in doing so, what are the clinical mistakes to avoid in understanding and supporting survivors? And so I've been doing trainings with with clinicians because I just um, there's also some research that shows that uh, clinicians who are not trained in at, at the very least in the nature of traumatic loss um, are not only less helpful but sometimes more hurtful. Right. And so there's that. And then the other area where I do trainings is is. Um, I, one of the, one of the other things that I hadn't mentioned before, in terms of the that what I what I do is um, I'm the co-chair um, along with my very dear colleague Vanessa McGann of what's called the uh, Coalition of Clinician Survivors, because one of the things that I recognized early on was that the impact was both personal and professional. Yeah, and. We also recognize that for clinicians who lose uh, clients or patients within a clinical context, that carries all sorts of um, extra issues like the confidentiality and sometimes other clinicians blaming them even when, again, they did everything they, they possibly could have. And so for close to 20 years, we've had this uh, coalition to support clinicians who have lost either a loved one or a client in these contexts. And so as part of that, we do trainings with organizations to not only help them prepare for losses if and when, God forbid, they do occur, but also to know have protocols in place so that they know how to best support both the surviving families of of the one who was lost, but also the clinicians who were involved in the treatment. Such wonderful work and so, so needed. 
Um, we've had a long history together, as you mentioned, you and I as colleagues and friends. And I know how important self-care is for you. <laughs> Do you mind sharing um, some of your self-care practices um, with our audience? And what fills you up? Well, unfortunately, there's like, and you know this too, that part of the, one of the self-care things, which I probably should be doing more of is saying no to things. But when I'm asked to do things that are related to this field, things that do fill me up and that I'm passionate about, sometimes it's hard to say no. But I keep learning the lesson over and over that if I don't start saying no to things, I'm just going to get you know, super saturated and burnt out. So I've actually just started being able to say, I need to back out of this, at least for a while, um, as one way to, to to care for myself. And the other thing is just to have as much as co contact with friends who get it, hmm. um, who I don't have to worry about judging me or, you know, who you know, who, who, who they get me, I get them and we sustain each other. And then like, well, um, you know, just sort of doing things that I enjoy, um, going to movies when, <laughs> well, don't want to get started, but unfortunately our beloved movie theater where I live closed down. Um, but you know, going for a run, um, you know, having great conversations with my now young adult daughter um, and playing board games on my phone. That's like a way to de-stress and just get my mind off, you know, some of the head, head stuff. And of course, exercising. So all those things that we recommend to our clients, we do as well, or we try to do. Staying, yeah. Saying no, setting boundaries, social support, uh, time with people who right. are meaningful. Yeah. And I want to say, actually, very early on, it was, it, you know, it was so overwhelming in those early stages that, like, self-care was not a concept. But the only thing that I did that I now realize was self-care, I... I um, I sort of developed my one and only addiction ever to jigsaw puzzles. Hmm. And so uh, right after Jeff died, I was, I was working on my dissertation and I had to make a bargain with myself that if I spent X number of hours working on my dissertation, then the rest of the day I could spend doing jigsaw puzzles. And I didn't leave the apartment except to go get more jigsaw puzzles. And I realize now that the jigsaw puzzles were a metaphor. You have this big box full of fragments hmm. and this need to put them back into a picture that's coherent and cohesive and to repeat that over and over again. And I think that was a good metaphor for what I needed to do for healing is to, you know, because in some ways this loss is about reassembling the fragments that are left in the wake of a loss into a, a, a new picture. Hmm. Makes me think I've always been very attracted to jigsaw puzzles is because everything fits together so nicely right, at the right. end. Yeah. 
So um, in closing, and this is the same question I ask everybody in closing, but what advice do you have for individuals who are struggling with the grief and the pain and just the, the intensity and the darkness right after the pain of a suicide loss? Well, to understand that initially um, part of that might be um, trauma symptoms that are and and to understand that that's normal because this is a traumatic loss and to because sometimes people feel like they're going crazy you're not this is just part and parcel of this crazy making loss secondly know that you're not alone there's are sort of very there's so many resources for survivors of suicide loss and um in and in the notes I'm going to include my resource list but you can find a lot of these a lot of these will be on the list but you can find many many you can find support groups online by going through afsp.org um and knowing that you're not alone in this can really help in personally find even one person who you feel like you can share loss with share your memories with um share your uh the ex- crazy making experience with who is not going to judge you and sometimes you don't necessarily know who that is ahead of time but if you can at least have one person in your life um who who gets it who understands it that can make a big difference the other thing is to sort of give yourself what we call grief holidays um you know find ways to say okay i'm gonna watch a funny movie or i'm gonna go for a walk and just listen to music and try to just um you know distract myself with something else because it can get very intense and there's you know some people find it really easy to kind of compartmentalize if they mm-hmm. have to go back to work but for some people it's really hard and to know again that it's not one size fits all mm-hmm. that it's going to be really difficult in the beginning but to know that and again the vast number of survivors will say the same thing that it might take a little longer um but that it does get easier it does get um less intense and that you will never forget your loved one if you move on that the old models of grief were that you get over it but the newer models really understand that what happens as we heal is that the loss is integrated that our loved ones are with us forever in our hearts and i'm going to end by quoting um, the wonderful woman who I run my uh, clinician support groups, my sorry, my um, survivor support groups with Marilyn Nobori, Nobori who lost her uh, 14-year-old daughter to suicide. And as she says, Iko is always there with me in my heart. The rest of me grew back around it. Hmm. What a wonderful, I happen to know Marilyn, what a wonderful, wonderful um, way she has of looking at that. Yeah. Wow. Such great wisdom, such great advice. Um, Thank you for sharing everything you did about what you've experienced, your clinical knowledge, 
um, your expertise, and what a pleasure it has been speaking with you today. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for the offer to be able to share uh, my experience. Thanks all around. So uh, (laughs) Nina Guten, everyone, take care. As Nina stated, she's been able to use her work in the field as suicidology as a way to find meaning in her own loss. And I've never met someone as dedicated to improving the lives of individuals impacted by a suicide loss as Nina. There's nothing she will not do for her clients. As a person, she has a wicked sense of humor. She is brilliant and she is beyond compassionate. She's incredibly philanthropic, goes out of her way to be creative and thinks out of the box to make sure the needs of her clients and those she cares about are met. In our interview, although Nina was talking about suicide loss, there are so many commonalities that do apply to an unexpected death in general. I am sure many of you who have experienced an unexpected death from other causes can still relate to the feelings she talked about of going crazy, the trauma responses related to symptoms of PST, excuse me, the trauma responses related to post-traumatic stress disorder, and dealing with friends and family who don't know how to respond to your needs or how to interact with you. There are also things that Nina discussed that are so unique to suicide. The stigma related to a death by suicide is so real and it prevents so many people from getting the help they need. And there really aren't enough resources available to support people who have had a death by suicide. I'm so glad she also shared Jack Jordan's concept of a trial because I see so many suicide survivors presume themselves to be guilty in the cause of their loved one's suicide as a way to find answers to a situation that does not make any sense. If you are coping with the loss of suicide and you find yourself in need of support, I recommend you seek a mental health professional like Nina or someone who specializes in suicide or unexpected loss and is knowledgeable about the specific needs that you have as a survivor of a loved one who died by suicide. Thank you so much for joining today's episode of Untethered, Healing the Pain After a Sudden and Unexpected Death. For help with a sudden and unexpected loss, please sign up for my free mini course where I will teach you about the three truths about living with a sudden and unexpected death. Please go to my website, www.fromgrieftogrowth.com to sign up now. Bye for now, and I'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. For help with a sudden and unexpected loss, 
Sign up for my free mini course where I will teach you the three truths about living with a sudden and unexpected loss. Please visit www.fromgrieftogrowth.com to sign up.